welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, I'm back in the end of day's bunker, and we've got great stuff in store for you. I've got a far-ranging monologue and a number of things that have caught my attention in the era of COVID. And next, I'll be joined via Zoom by Dr. Amit Sarpatwari, Assistant Professor at Harvard Medical School. We're going to be talking about incentives for drug developers in the time of COVID. To whom should profits go? You won't want to miss this discussion. Stay tuned. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. All right, first up this week, we've got a few things COVID-related to talk about. I don't know where to start. I think I'll start with the remdesivir, any JM compassionate use manuscript. This is a manuscript that appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine on April 10th, detailing the compassionate use results with remdesivir for patients with severe COVID. They gave the drug to 61 patients who received at least one dose of remdesivir. Notably, data from eight could not be analyzed. Data from eight out of 61 seven of which we don't know where they are anymore. That's about 13% of people. Now, this is a compassionate use protocol. So all I can say is that this is a non-randomized setting. That's easy. It's also not a protocol setting. These are people who happened to get remdesivir compassionate use. To get compassionate use, you have to file a request with both the manufacturer and often with the regulatory agency to give this drug, an unapproved drug, to a patient to whom you believe they might benefit. Now, of course, to whom are the people we're going to go the extra mile for? Are we going to go the extra mile for somebody who's 80 years old with a low ejection fraction, with a comorbid illness? The answer is probably not. We're probably going to go the extra mile for the young person, the 35-year-old, the 40-year-old, the 55-year-old who may only have a touch of hypertension or diabetes or may not have any comorbidity at all. In fact, a quarter of these patients had no other coexisting conditions, suggesting that they have COVID-19 and nothing else, and they're not doing so well. That's to whom we're going to give it. And now, what about where are we going to give it? Where are the hospitals that are going to go the extra mile to prescribe a compassionate use drug? Are Is every hospital equally likely to? Or are tertiary or quaternary centers with more resources, more staff, more ability to seek out and know of and get these drugs more likely to give it. That's the second bias. So it has to do with both the types of places in which these drugs are given and the types of people to whom they're given. And when you factor in those two things, you have a recipe for a cake that can't really be replicated. It can't be written down. And so if you want to compare the results, the percent of people here who survived invasive ventilation or ECMO to prior case series from China, from Seattle, from Italy, you can't really do so. 
because those are case series done for all the people for whom we're treating at a certain center. And here, you're looking at people who got compassionate use drug, which is a certain type of person more likely to get it than another type of person, and a certain type of center is more likely to give it than another type of center. So what does the remdesivir, compassionate use, uncontrolled, non-trial teach us? Well, some have said it teaches us that remdesivir is not a parachute. Well, you know what? I could have told you that. I could have told you it's not a parachute. You know what else is not a parachute? Hydroxychloroquine is not a parachute. Tocilizumab is not a parachute. Echolizumab is not a parachute. Remdesivir is not a parachute. Lopinavir, ritonavir is not a parachute. Rayataz is not a parachute. None of these are parachutes. Why are they not parachutes? If there were parachutes, any drug for COVID, somebody would be saying, I gave five people with COVID this drug. It had a 100% success rate. Everyone recovered. And then I gave it to five more and everyone recovered. And the moment I told people I'd given 10 people this drug with 100% recovery, everybody started doing it. Now we have a series of 400 recovered people. That has not happened. And that is unlikely to happen because the history of medicine teaches us that those sorts of interventions are vanishingly few. We do several million things per year and interventions that are universally accepted in the absence of randomization can fill a list of about a hundred interventions, you know, something like one out of every 10 to the power of six or 10 to the power of seven interventions is a parachute-esque intervention. And even that is probably not a true parachute level. There might be some ways in which we could use randomization to probe these questions. That said, remdesivir compassionate use, New England Journal paper, it actually, it actually tells you nothing. I mean, it might tell you that remdesivir doesn't cause 20% methemoglobinemia. It might tell you remdesivir doesn't result in the lysis of red blood cells at high rates, 20%, 30% rates. It can tell you some very large, huge safety signals are not present. That's all it can tell you. It can't tell you about small safety signals. It can't tell you about efficacy. It can't tell you you should do it. it. can't tell you you shouldn't do it. It really can't tell you much. And the fact that they lost 13% of people in this compassionate use protocol how do you, what is going on where you can't get data from eight people? So people who are severely ill with COVID, they're not eloping. If they're on ECMO, they can't get very far on ECMO. So how are you losing them to follow up? I don't even understand this. And of course, the trial includes medical writer support. And I will say just one thing, which is somebody said that the manuscript is appropriately cautious and it says that randomization is necessary. Uh, let me read you a little, a little quote. Although data from several ongoing randomized control trials will soon provide more informative evidence regarding the safety and efficacy of remdesivir for COVID-19, the outcomes observed in this compassionate use program are the best currently available data. No, they're not the best currently available data. They're not useful data at all. No inference can be drawn regarding efficacy. No inference can be drawn regarding mild and more common levels of toxicity. No real inference can be drawn at all. This is a waste of paper. It's not worth being published as a full article. It could be published as a preprint, and it should be disregarded. It has really no bearing on what we're supposed to do. Meanwhile, we should be doing a randomized control trial, and we are doing a randomized control trial where Rindesivir is being tested against standard of care. The primary endpoint of that study has been changed, and it's now a seven-point WHO score, ranging from you feel fine and you're outside of the hospital to you're severely ill, mechanically ventilated, and you die. Seven points along the way, they're logical points. It's a clinical scale. However, the virtue of a seven-point clinical scale is when you switch an endpoint from a dichotomous endpoint to a seven-point clinical scale, you're cranking up the power a lot because people can move multiple points on the scale and you can move from six to five or five to four. 
The other thing you're doing in this trial that's deeply problematic is it's open label. The control arm is not getting remdesivir placebo. And if some of the points on the scale are, is this person requiring supplemental oxygen, that creates a huge potential for bias. Because of course, if the providers know that the patient got remdesivir, they may on the margin be more aggressive in weaning oxygen than if they know they didn't get remdesivir. The only way to adjust for that is to have blinding, to have a placebo bag being given so they don't know that and don't change their behavior accordingly. Now, this wouldn't be as big an issue if the primary endpoint was death. But as long as the primary endpoint involves clinical maneuvers that vary based on doctor's understanding of what is going on in a person, as long as it requires a doctor's subjective decision-making, you need to blind the study to separate the effect of remdesivir from the belief that the patient got something that ought to help. That has to be separated. There's nobody better on this topic than Daryl Francis. And second best is John Mandrola, who wrote a really beautiful paper in Medscape explaining why this must be blinded. This is a bias-susceptible endpoint. And when you have a bias-susceptible endpoint, you have to blind it. The other thing about this remdesivir randomized control trial is the sample size has been cranked up from 400 to 2400. So compassionate use data might look favorable to some people who don't understand historical comparisons, but what's far more telling is that a sample size has been cranked up from 400 to 2400, a five-fold increase in sample size, and the primary endpoint has shifted from a clinically meaningful primary endpoint to a seven-point scale, which has a lot more analytical flexibility and a lot more power. And these two maneuvers mean you're much more likely to find a statistically significant but clinically question mark effect size. And the fact that your trial is not blinded means that it will suffer from a deep and pervasive form of bias. So this ongoing remdesivir trial is not going to be very pretty no matter what until they add a blinded control arm. God help us if they don't because we're going to have a lot of arguments about it. Those are my thoughts on remdesivir, shifting gears, cloth masks. I Last week on this podcast, I said that the only acceptable answer for the evidence base of whether or not a federal agency should universally advocate, a uh, federal or state agency should universally advocate for people to wear cloth masks in public is to say the evidence base is absolutely uncertain and very, very weak. That's the only acceptable answer. Now, there are a lot of people out there who want to be zealots on this issue and think it's really good. And then you ask them what evidence they have, and I think somebody said that, uh, you know, we have laboratory evidence. We know that masks uh, abrogate particles. We know they catch particles. They prevent droplets from being spread. That's true, but the outer surface of a cloth mask may soak with particles, and somebody wearing a cloth mask may touch their nose uh, 50 times in an hour because it is sliding down or itchy, and then they may touch things with their hand. And those particles may be spread perhaps even more than had they not worn a cloth mask at all. In fact, you really don't know. And I said, went even further and said that a cloth mask recommendation made by a large federal or state body, it's more than just the properties of the mask. It also is, if I tell you to wear cloth masks, will that be a tacit endorsement that other masks are better? Because if healthcare workers are wearing N95s and surgical masks, and I tell you to wear cloth masks, it's better than nothing. I'm implying that those other masks are better. So will you tacitly seek out, compete for, and hoard said masks? That's a very common human behavioral response. In fact, it's the most natural thing in the world to want the best for yourself. And although you're sympathetic to healthcare workers to think that, you know, me, one more person having a healthcare worker grade mask isn't really going to hurt them. I'm just one person cheating. Uh, that's not really going to hurt them. It's so natural to rationalize that to yourself. Will such a recommendation lead to people to go out more? Will it lead to people to call to end social distancing sooner? Will you touch your face more? Will you touch surfaces after having touched your face? Are you likely to go out when you're feeling slightly ill? These are all 
the considerations that must go into it. It is a behavioral mandate. It is not just a mechanical mandate. It is a behavioral mandate. It changes potentially the behavior of people to whom it is recommended. It changes their thinking. It is more than just the mask itself. And so when I read a non-peer-reviewed preprint by Howard and colleagues that says components to evaluate public mask wearing. In order to evaluate whether public mask wearing is an appropriate policy, we need to consider these questions. Do asymptomatic or presymptomatic patients pose a risk of infecting others? Would a face mask likely decrease the number of people infected by an infectious mask wearer? Are there alternative face covers that would not disrupt the medical supply chain? Example, homemade cloth masks. Will wearing a mask impact the probability of the wearer becoming infected themselves? And five, does mask use reduce compliance with other recommended strategies such as physical distancing and quarantine? These questions are fine, but they still don't go far enough. Because it's not enough to say, are there alternative face covers that will not disrupt the medical supply chain? You have to ask, by advocating for people to use said alternative face cover, will you tacitly encourage them to disrupt the medical supply chain? Which is a very complex behavioral question that you simply don't have evidence for to answer. You have to also ask, what is the actual effect of wearing this mask on rates of infection? And the answer is you really don't have good controlled studies that will answer that question for you. This is incredibly speculative. And... As long as it's incredibly speculative, unprecedented and speculative, I have correctly diagnosed it as it's not really in the sphere of medicine. It's the sphere of, of foreign policy. It's making end-of-one decisions where there is no second chance. There's no turn back. There's no evaluation. There's no counterfactual. There's no real good data. And if you want to play that game and say we ought to retaliate against a foreign power, then Play that game. Say that. But don't, don't pretend. Don't pretend you're doing it based on strong evidence. And don't, don't argue with me that, that the evidence is really compelling. Okay, and then the last thing I will say, because I'm really certain that this is um, mostly driven by anxiety and people who don't have anything better to do than to shame other people uh, about not wearing a cloth face mask, which is probably the least useful thing that anyone could do in this present moment. And one further piece of evidence that this is uh, totally, I think, a distraction from meaningful conversation is the following. We all hunker down, let's say mid-March, March 15th-ish. Some of us hunker down even before. I've had some friends tell me that their, their work actually said, even in early March, you guys should start working from home. And in fact, that's what I told people who work for me. Uh, and, and, and we've started social distancing since early March-ish, mid-March-ish. We'll all agree that that's generally this, what's been happening. The incubation period of this virus is, let's say, 14 days, around there, 11 to 20-some days, something in that range. Um, and we've been hunkering down over this time period. The recommendations for universal mask wearing happen in early, happen at the very tail end of March, early April. That's when zealots, proponents of universal cloth masks, started beating on that drum. So I think my point here is that you don't really know for sure if the net effect is positive or negative. But let's just assume. Let's give them the credit, benefit of the doubt. Let's just say there's a net positive effect. There's a relative risk reduction from wearing universal cloth masks beyond what we're already doing. Let's give them that credit. What has happened to that absolute risk reduction over time? If they had advocated for this in early March, the absolute risk reduction, would it be bigger or smaller than the end of March? You see, by hunkering down, we've allowed time to elapse. And many people who have COVID, who didn't know it, have declared themselves with COVID. They've started feeling sick at home. They're much more likely to be quarantined. The large number of people who might be spreading it asymptomatically, that was far greater at the beginning of the month than at the end of the month. So even if you believe this intervention is good, 
and valuable and worth it. Why did it take you two weeks and a diminishing effectiveness to speak up about it? If you really knew and the evidence was so clear and the logic was so sound, then why didn't you say something two weeks ago when the magnitude of benefit had to be bigger than the magnitude of benefit is now? The magnitude of benefit must have shrunk because for two weeks, people have been in massive social isolation disrupting the transmission of this virus. The best opportunity for this would have been in the week before we shut down where Costco's were swarmed and Walmart's were swarmed and people were stocking up, uh, preparing for a long hunkering down. That's the best opportunity for the cloth mask. But where were you then when people were lining up 10 deep in Trader Joe's? Where were you then? You didn't say anything then. You don't really know what you're talking about. You just found this issue out and you're just beating on this drum right now. If you really knew all this, nothing is really different between end of February, end of January, and now. You should have been saying that, you know, when you go out to stock up for what is likely to be an impending shutdown, you should wear cloth mask then. But you didn't say that. Nobody said that. That's why it's just so disingenuous. The data is lousy. The, the potential for unintended behavioral compensatory mechanisms is tremendous. I don't know what to say. I just think it's not a hill to die on. And I said online that if 20% of the people who want to beat on this drum would instead beat on the drum that everyone should take hydrochlorothiazide or chlorothalidone or lisinopril if they have hypertension, we would save much more lives than, than this particular issue. So this is not an issue worth, worth fighting in. That's why I try to steer clear of the discussions on Twitter, because they're more, I think, faith-based than they are based on reason. Okay, the last topic of this monologue. What's wrong with doctors? I just saw this Associated Press story about a critical care physician who had a patient with COVID, uh, progressive COVID in the ICU, prone ventilated with difficulty oxygenating, and, you know, we've all been there. I mean, how many times have we been there with ARDS and you prone ventilate or you do um, some very clever ventilatory setting management like high-frequency oscillation or something like that and you still can't oxygenate this person? I mean, I've been there since I've been an intern and getting hammer-paged about that overnight. Um, and they could have viral pneumonia or they could have another proximate cause of ARDS. You know, we've all been there. Um, and in these settings, what do we do? We do our very absolute best to ventilate patients and you can contact your ICU colleagues and try to get the opinion of a different pulmonary critical care doctor. You can do a number of maneuvers to try to improve oxygenation. And when you can't do all that, what what is the outcome? Unfortunately, the outcome is that some people die in that setting. That's, uh, that is a way in which people die. And that's tragic. Uh, and we, we don't want that. Um, but that is a potential outcome. The other outcome is sometimes you, you, you hang on by a thread, you keep them going, and, and then they kind of pull out, um, much less frequent outcome. What happened in this case? This was an example where the patient was prone ventilated, deteriorating oxygen saturation, and the provider gave them TPA. Did they know they had a PE? No. They gave them TPA. And what happened to the patient? The patient died. And then what did the provider do? They did it to four more people, and then they gave it as a, a drip, TPA drip. Oh, boy. I think we've lost our minds here. I had a long tutorial out on COVID-19 where I argued that COVID-19 has really changed the playbook. I mean, I'm seeing rules for anticoagulation analytics, rules for ventilatory settings in ARDS, and rules for antivirals, anti-inflammatories that I've never seen before. I mean, let me just take you through some of these things. We we know how to manage hospital. Um, we know how to manage hospital and ICU VTE prophylaxis. We know how to take care of people with ARDS. Um, we know the rules for the administration of experimental drugs outside of trials. Um, prior to COVID-19, if you had a condition where a small fraction of people would die, like let's say 
1-2% of people would die. And that's a high case fatality rate for COVID. So of all the people diagnosed with COVID, you have a 1-2% rate of death, but you have a um, 90 plus percent chance of surviving without any sequela. Uh, would we recommend just giving unproven drugs? The answer is I don't think so. Um, certainly not if you're sick with something where most people recover with a tincture of time. Uh, even if the fatality rate is in the one to two percentage points, we wouldn't recommend just trying things willy-nilly. Um, we would be slightly more likely, but still unlikely to recommend trying things willy-nilly if you're hospitalized with influenza, trying just random drugs, zinc and, uh, and uh, vitamin C, even though there is a death rate, of course, if you're hospitalized with influenza or another viral pneumonia or another condition like that. If you were critically ill in the ICU with a viral pneumonia, we would be slightly more likely to give you something that we don't really have great data for, but still we would recognize that um, we are far more likely to be missing than we are to be landing. Um, and as such, um, as such, uh, we would still have a little bit of a reluctance uh, to do that. I mean, I'm trying to give you an analogy for what it's like when you just throw drugs at people with a condition. And what are the probabilities that you'll help them? What are the probabilities that you won't do anything at all? And what are the probabilities that you'll hurt them? Let's imagine a map of the United States and you just throw a dart at it and the dart hits the map. And we have a really fine tip dart. So it has a very fine tip on the end of that dart. And it hits just, you know, one, you know, six by six piece of land on that dart. The probability you would benefit somebody is if you threw a dart at the United States and you hit a Starbucks. You might hit a Starbucks, but it's going to be really hard to randomly throw a dart at the United States and hit a Starbucks. The probability that you'll do nothing for them, either beneficial or harmful, if you take a approved drug and give it off label, that's like the probability that you'll you'll hit some some piece of dirt. You'll just hit empty dirt. You'll hit uh, a wheat field. You'll hit a forest. You'll just hit some dirt. That's that probability. That's a huge probability. The probability that you'll hurt them is the probability you'll strike uh, a house. Um, that's much higher than hitting a Starbucks. And those are probably the rough probabilities of if you just started pulling drugs off the shelf and started giving it to people with conditions without really any sound thinking behind that. And that is really the state that we're in right now. Daryl Francis illustrated this wonderfully in a thought experiment that kind of takes you through the exact same thing. So as a general rule, we don't just give experimental agents willy-nilly. All right, then the next thing I want to talk about is if you want to treat thrombotic risk differently or you want to treat ARDS differently in these patients with novel ventilatory strategies or novel pharmacologic dosing of anticoagulation. Um, one, we have to recognize people are already doing it. Imperial College London has a protocol that says if your D-dimer is above a certain cutoff, we're going to give you full dose um, Lovenox, even if you don't have proven VTE. Um, we see it with ARDS. People are saying this is not really ARDS. The compliance is different. Uh, it's different lung physiology. Um, the answer is that these are really not compelling stories. Um, critically ill patients uh, with viral pneumonia with ARDS, they do have microthrombi. Critically ill patients have a range of compliance. ARDS is a heterogeneous state. Um, and there are a number of threads that I link to where people kind of take you through the biology of why these are really not fundamentally different than severe illness. Um, but moreover, even if they were, even if they were fundamentally different, we would need randomized controlled trials to tell us whether or not breaking our evidence-based norms or practices for novel strategies like giving people full-dose anticoagulation. Is that beneficial or harmful? Of course, giving full-dose anticoagulation when you don't have a proven VTE, um, that's not standard of care for people who are hospitalized with illnesses, even severe illnesses. Uh, and the potential for serious downsides is not zero. The TPA one just blew me away. I mean, even in settings where people have documented massive or submassive PE, the, the data 
that TPA improves survival is very, very poor, very poor and debatable. And some of us hesitate to give it even in that setting. So to give it in a setting where PE is not even the, the primary driver, you have a viral pneumonia, you don't even know if PE is a secondary driver, and if so, to what degree, to give it in that setting, the risk-benefit calculation, it's got to almost surely tip towards net positive. You're probably much more likely to hasten death and kill people from brain bleeds and you name it than to benefit them from giving TPA drips in this setting. Why are you giving TPA drips? Four weeks ago, if you have a patient with unknown viral pneumonia on the vent, you wouldn't give them a TPA drip. And there really is nothing new now to give them a TPA drip. I think it's crazy. We had another story that came out of Washington where a patient got tocilizumab and they say, quote, saved his life. He was also getting vitamin C and this new story writes a couple other drugs. A couple other drugs? What are a couple other drugs? Why is he getting vitamin C? Why is he getting tocilizumab? Why is he getting all these drugs? These are, these are hypotheses to be tested. They're not kitchen sink drugs to be given. If the patient getting vitamin C, tocilizumab, and a few other drugs, let's say Kaletra and Remdesivir, because that's common these days, if he gets better, did he live because of the kitchen sink approach or in spite of the kitchen sink approach? If he dies, did he die because of the kitchen sink approach or despite the kitchen sink approach? You don't know. People have messaged me saying that universities are considering ecolizumab. Ecolizumab, tocilizumab, and then randomized trials ongoing for Selinexor and acalabrutinib and COVID. It's fascinating to me that the only anti-cancer drugs being repurposed for COVID are the costly branded ones. I don't see any enthusiasm for etoposide, vincristine, and platinums. No, that, those couldn't do anything at all. But these novel drugs that are on patent, which make tens of thousands of dollars per prescription, those might have promise. It's, it's really kind of a farce that... Um, it's much more driven by what people think they can succeed in, in market rather than, I think, any sort of logic to what's being done. And the, the truth is that at this point, we have so many different ongoing studies for agents in COVID that some will be positive by chance alone. They will be positive results that do not represent drugs that make people better, but simply by the selection bias that so many things are being tried. So my takeaway points here is that, is it possible that different anticoagulation management is better for COVID? It's possible. It's possible that different ventilatory settings is better? It's possible. And is it possible that any, some, all of these drugs, not all, but some of these drugs are better than nothing? It's possible. But the only way you'll ever know that is if you test these things, and the worst thing to do on the earth is to just do things differently without, one, proving that this is a different condition, and two, proving that the different strategies improve outcomes. That is a recipe to throw the dart and be much more likely to hit a house than you are to hit a Starbucks. You're much more likely to make things worse off than you are to make things better off. Those are just sort of principles of biology. So I get that people are scared. I get that people are worried about their own health, but it's not good. It's not good to flip out and just start, start giving things. Um, I'm willing to bet that a vitamin C deficiency is not the number one concern of somebody with severe COVID. I'm willing to bet that. I'm willing to also bet that anything that ends in a MAB is probably going to be a negative study. And the only reason that MABs are going to be preferentially tested is that MABs are a lucrative commodity. I'm willing to bet that repurposed drugs are probably not going to be as beneficial as drugs that were designed and tailored for this particular illness or malady. Because in general, there are not many out of 20,000 FDA-approved drugs that are repurposed for multiple distinct indications with different mechanisms of action. That's really incredibly atypical. Very low probability of that. So those are just some thoughts. And the last thought, if you are bold enough or brave enough to give TPA to five people with COVID, 
some of whom you haven't even documented PE, even they could have poor oxygenation from the COVID itself. If you are bold enough to do that, do us all the favor of not speaking with a reporter about it. Because when you speak with a reporter about it, you're only going to fuel the flames of irrational thinking. Wait for the trial. I don't see any, there's no rule that says you have to tell a reporter about all the things that you're trying in your in your hospital. You don't have to tell a reporter about it. You don't have to tell the story about the patient that got better because he got tocilizumab, vitamin C, and, and quote, a couple other drugs. You don't have to run these stories. You don't have to run the stories. You don't have to, you don't have to fuel the stories. We can kill these stories. These stories should not be printed. The stories we need are the randomized trial of hydroxychloroquine, 75 people in each arm finds no benefit in the primary endpoint of viral load and um, symptomatic recovery, which is a preprint out uh, uh, right now out of China. Um, that's the kind of story we need. We don't need a story about one doc um, who might have gotten better anyway, who got tocilizumab and vitamin C and now got better. That's not a very helpful story. So don't participate in those stories. And on that positive note, we're going to turn to our interview with Dr. Amit Sarpatwari. So I'm back here in plenary session, end of day's bunker, joined via Zoom with Dr. Amit Sarpatwari. Dr. Sarpatwari is assistant professor at the Harvard Medical School. He's a part of the Portal Group, working on pharmaceutical regulation and pricing. Dr. Sarpatwari, it's a pleasure to have you here on the podcast. Back again. It's a pleasure to join you, Benai. So we were going to start by talking about some of the interesting issues that have arisen about drug products. Um, expanded access, off-protocol use, clinical trials um, that surround COVID-19. I wonder, you know, where do you think it's most fruitful to jump in on? Where, where should we start here? Sure. I think there's several shortcomings that the current pandemic has shown with regard to how we develop, uh, manufacture, and access drugs, and that includes vaccines. But, uh, I mean, in general, we have drug approvals at record highs, uh, but we lack uh, robust pipelines to combat infectious disease and central nervous system disorders that threaten to overwhelm our healthcare system. Um, that, that's just point one. I mean, we've had two prior big coronavirus outbreaks, but in terms of effective therapies against uh, that family of viruses, we were still pretty lacking. And so it shows that, I mean, we've got a drug development system that works well in the system that it, it is placed, which is to prioritize drugs that will return short-term profit, not necessarily drugs of public health need. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, that that's, I guess, one point is that we, we're sort of struggling uh, being prepared. It's very reactive. Yeah. And it, it seems that way. Um, I mean, there are a couple of just such notable failures. Uh, circa circa 2004 to 2012, when we were working on SARS-CoV-1, uh, and uh, and folks at NIAID said that you know for a, a small nominal fee, uh, we can develop a vaccine for this with this coronavirus. And uh, we felt like you know what, it's just not worth 50 million dollars to develop that vaccine. And here we are, uh, a decade later, uh, just drop four trillion or something like that uh, in, in in lost GDP, uh, or maybe even more. Uh, so it just goes to show you that um, you know funding for science, uh, it's always thought of as uh, not worth it. Uh, uh, but the truth is, um, it's almost always uh, deeply worth it. I think that's uh, very well said. And the real question is, I mean, what lessons are we going to learn from this moving forward? Uh, right now, we're going to put our foot to the gas in terms of trying to develop the therapeutics uh, for COVID-19. But uh, 
you know, COVID-19 is not going to be the end of the story. And uh, we have to have the wherewithal to, to actually fund not the basic science, but to push those products through through development. Um, and it's always easier when you see the pandemic right at your doorstep. But uh, when it's uh, nothing more than a thought in your head and despite uh, predictions that it will become imminent until you see it uh, getting public action going is very difficult. Yeah. I think uh, I think I think that's well put, and um, and I guess we also see some of the same sort of a microcosm of the same problems uh, with COVID nineteen, which is that um, you know it, there is so much enthusiasm to just give all the drugs we have off label to everyone who's very sick uh, in yep. a way where we don't figure out what works or what doesn't in a very costly, inefficient way. And again, you know, I was this morning sort of arguing a little bit online about how, uh, you know, we could have had the randomized trials done of hydroxychloroquine now uh, if we wanted. We have a French guy who just gave it to 2,000 people off protocol. Uh, he's done a huge disservice. He can just have randomized 200 people, and he would have had an answer. Uh, but they don't want to do that. And so, you know, we just drag this out, and it's going to be probably uh, maybe 10K, 100K people who take this off protocol before we have a simple answer to the question, does this help or hurt? Yeah, and that highlights that we were not prepared in terms of what our protocol for assessing evidence in real time during pandemics will be. But that speaks to our large unwillingness in general to uh, to subject rigorous testing at the time at the time of approval. And uh, I mean that's compounded by the fact that, as you've written nicely with Zeke Emanuel in the Washington Post, that uh, you know we, we've got a, a shortage of structure where we know the indication that it's used for in, in conditions like lupus um, are uh, extraordinarily useful and we're threatening that supply. So it speaks to a, a couple of uh, different failures within the broader pharmaceutical system we built for ourselves. And one is subjecting drugs to rigorous evidence at the time of approval. And here we've authorized, uh, FDA has put forward emergency use authorization for chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, but we don't have good evidence that it works. As you said, we could have put forward and had ready a testing protocol, which would have developed evidence in real time in which we would have already had the evidence base right now. But now what we're doing is we're actually threatening supply of drugs yeah. to people who, for whom we know these drugs are beneficial, with people with lupus. And so that speaks to a, a failure of evidence generation, which is really your forte. And um, then uh, we also have the compounded issue of uh, a robustness of supply and diversity of supply. And, you know, there was only one manufacturer of this drug in the United States. I mean, there's other externally, but it points to the fact that from a national security interest, uh, in addition to a public health interest, uh, we have to make sure that we have a secure, robust supply of essential medications. Mm -hmm. And um, we don't. Yeah, I think that that just nails it. Um I guess one of the other issues that you have, you've been very interested in for several years now, and uh, we can talk a little bit about your recent piece in JAMA about um, gene therapy, is um, the oversized role of the U.S. federal government in developing certain drug products and bringing those to market. And even though the federal government uh, took upon their own shoulders the, the riskiest period, the period of greatest uncertainty, we often see commercial sponsors be able to capitalize on that risk that was borne by the public sector in terms of private profits. And so we'd see things like CAR-T therapy, which was 
principally developed by the U.S. federal government's decade-long effort of funding something that many people thought wasn't very promising, um, that ultimately culminated in successful drug products. Uh, but the lion's share of the profits have gone to just a handful of companies, um, Novartis and Kite. Um, so my question to you here is that, is the same concern true for COVID-19? Uh, are you afraid that whatever vaccines are developed or whatever sort of public funding there is for some of these uh, agents, the anti-coronavirus agents, that the profits will be captured by the private sector? Definitely. And I think we can go into the whole issue, but the current framework is such that many prescription drugs are arising from key late stage contributions from US government funded research, but the rights and intellectual property underlying these drugs are routinely transferred to private sector manufacturers, which do, you know, let's not quibble and do important work in conducting expensive clinical trials uh, and create commercial production distribution systems. But they often charge extraordinarily high prices for these products. And that we know we've seen, we've been talking repeatedly about contributing uh, to non-adherence among patients and strain for the healthcare system and its resources. And I think this is just magnified in the case of COVID-19. Um, you've got a situation, let's just take remdesivir, yeah. which again is developed uh, with substantial federal funding, yeah. um, but the exclusive rights to it are going to rest with Gilead. Yeah. And now the question is, there is no... Uh, there is no check on what Gilead is going to be able to charge if this drug shows to be effective yeah. in including patients with COVID-19. And the real question is, what is our return? I mean, the fundamental question here is, uh, what should we as taxpayers expect in terms of public return on public investment? There are some people who will take the approach, and you know, I, I understand it, but I disagree with it, but there's some people who take the approach, well, the return is getting the drug. And my response is, the drug is not going to be helpful unless it's affordable. Yeah. Um, and so now we've got this debate, which is largely, unfortunately, not not based on, the, although some sides will claim that it's based on, on great evidence, but this question about what our current model is, whether or not it could be done differently. And so the current model is, well, it's only the narrative that the pharmaceutical industry really would like to press is that it's only the private sector that can do this late stage development. Yeah. Um, and and I think that that's really a uh, a debatable proposition and one that is increasingly contributing harm to our current system. But at least given our knowledge that increasingly over time there's increasing late stage contribution from federally funded uh, research to the development of drugs. Yeah. What should we do about those drugs? Should we impose reasonable pricing conditions in terms of transferring the technology to the private sector? That's one possibility. Yeah. Another possibility is could we even develop a national uh, public pharmaceutical R&D institute that would be in charge of taking these drugs through late stage uh, testing? And there's the question of, well, how does the current setup work right now? Yes, conducting late-stage clinical trials, extraordinarily expensive, yeah. risky. Um, but in terms of who is actually doing a lot of the legwork, it's it's contract research organizations, yeah. right? Yeah. And exactly. so yeah, third parties. why are we charging or allowing such a premium on that role? 
And can we do something different? Could we have certain drugs, particularly in areas of market failure, where already we know that the private sector is not really wanting to or is not doing a good job of bringing antibiotics, let's say antiviral medications to market, could we have the federal government actually be responsible for bringing those drugs to market? Well, and then open it up in the sense of at that point, the exclusive uh, in terms of the license to those products, you could open it up to any FDA certified manufacturer who could essentially now you've got a generic system from the get go of product launch. Why is that not something we could attempt? Um, to me, it seems like it's at least worth trying, given the current failures to our system. Yeah. And I think, you know, you put this well, which is that I think our intuition is fundamentally that the public should, uh, that it's not good enough that you sell it back to us. I mean, just to take an, uh, an example, an analogy, if, uh, if, uh, if somebody walked into Central Park and then they started digging up the lawn and planting crops and, uh, and people in New York were like, what, what are you doing here uh, on, on our public lands? I'm like, oh, well, you know, we're going to grow some crops. Uh, well, what are you going to do when you, when you get the yield of these crops? Well, we'll sell it to you in a farmer's market. And then they'll say, um, uh, okay, uh, uh, but, you know, what are you going to do to pay back uh, use of the land? Oh, the fact we're going to sell it to you. There, there you go. That's the benefit to you. Uh, you might say that that's not good enough. Uh, you're going to have to lease the land. You're going to have to reimburse us. Uh, just selling us the crops back that you grew on our public lands is not sufficient benefit to society for using our land. And if so, why you? Why not the next person, right? So, you know, similarly, I think that, you know, a lot of the NIH research that underpins particularly the classes of drugs that you've picked on, which are really good classes to pick on, CAR T-cells and gene therapy, because those really were, you know, so underlaid by federal funding. Um, it seems as if the public is entitled to some of the fruits of that labor, uh, the, the fact that it is our land that, that those crops were grown on. Exactly. And I think that one argument is, well, let's put this in context. It's especially uh, apparent what the federal and tax public contribution is to these gene therapies. So in a recent study that we did in, we published in JAMA, we took a look at what the current landscape was for gene therapy trials. And we're not talking here about basic science. We're talking about actual human clinical testing, phase one, phase two, phase three trials. And um, among gene therapy trials listed in clinicaltrials.gov as active on January 2019, the biopharmaceutical industry sponsored or funded less than half. Mm -hmm. And so that is really what is the return? Um, And some people might argue, well, the return should be the sort of generally speaking meager royalties that are, are given out in terms of licensing of products. But really, we should be thinking of returns in terms of access to medications, affordability of medications. Um, and it's it's not sufficient, in my opinion, that we should be focused on what financial returns are to certain prominent drug development universities, let's say MIT or Harvard mm-hmm. or UCLA, because that ultimately, at the end of the day, isn't going to benefit the taxpayer. Yeah. Um, And so what we really need to do is refocus this in terms of answering what the public health needs are. Yeah. And I think, you know, to make that sort of the New York City garden analogy even more apt, it would be, uh, you know, you you, you grow your crops in Central Park and then you sell them back to us. Uh, the citizens of New York City, um, but we're not allowed to negotiate the price, and we have to buy the crops. So that really kind of yeah. <laughs> you're, you're taking it exactly. So now you see how free the the pharmaceutical market is. Uh, 
even the, the fundamental offer of exclusivity is a government-granted right. Mm. And we oftentimes lose sight of that. It's not as though we are... Uh, we are providing, uh, in addition as an incentive to develop these products, a huge period of exclusivity. Let's not forget that oftentimes that period is abused and attempted to be extended, yeah. but a huge period of exclusivity. And uh, and then on top of that, we're layering that with exactly the rules that you mentioned. We're saying that Medicare uh, has to cover all cancer drugs. We're saying Medicaid has to cover all drugs, period. So we're, we're kind of handcuffing the payer, which at the end of the day is uh, hurting patients, but also hurting uh, the, the healthcare system as a whole. Yeah. So one provocative idea is the idea that you you know you just sort of described, which is can we imagine a governmental, non-governmental, non-profit sort of arm responsible um, for late-stage drug development, for going the last mile with CAR T's? You know, the the, the company um, instead of going to Novartis for Carl June to bring CAR T's to the market, he could have gone to this third-party entity and they could have sort of brought it to market, um, or at least done so. You know, with a CRO, um, with some um, plan in place that if it is successful, they'll allow several companies to bid uh, to manufacture or allow several companies to manufacture at the same time to promote competition. You know, that's a really a provocative idea. But I'm wondering if you could also talk about sort of a different idea you've had, you put forth in the Annals of Internal Medicine, about an, an alternative way to ensure the affordability of these drugs um, in the absence of sort of an independent entity. Yeah, and so another idea is simply that when you're handing over the technology, uh, when you're transferring that technology, the exclusive licensing to certain products, or as a condition of federal funding in general, you could actually require that, that the end-stage products that are coming out of that will be reasonably priced. And what do we mean by reasonable? It's not like we want to do a uh, you know bottom of the, the bucket type of price. Uh, we're talking about a fair price. And uh, one way to dictate what a fair price would be is value-based pricing. What is the actual clinical value of the drug? And the, the nice thing about that is right now we talk about uh, drug development at all-time highs, but the real question is what drugs? Mm -hmm. So of all new drugs approved by the FDA in 2017, about two-thirds were rated by expert organizations in other countries like Germany, France, and Canada to offer no or minor additional benefits over existing treatments. And tonight you've written plenty about how crappy some existing drugs are. And, uh, you know, I, I don't want to underemphasize how, how difficult drug development is, mm -hmm. but the fact of the matter is we're not incentivizing good drugs. We're incentivizing drug development. Mm -hmm. um, and what we could do by a reasonable pricing condition that's based on clinical value is to actually promote the innovation we want or need. Um, and that would allow manufacturers still to profit handsomely off of certain drugs that provide immense benefit. But in general, we are vastly overpaying for products. And conditioning prices on on value is one way we could do this. And we've got lessons to learn from that experience, and I'm happy to, to go into that. Yeah. Um, I think that's that's the right answer, which is that, I mean, what, what, you're, what it sounds to me like what you're saying is that you are not opposed to profits in this sector. In fact, you, you, you're happy to have profits in this sector, but you want those profits to be tied to tangible public benefits. And, and what you see increasingly is that there's a disconnect. Um, that there are drugs that are incredibly profitable, maybe even the most profitable drugs that just come with a modicum or a sliver or maybe not even that of benefit. And thus, you know, something like that, 
you know, the thing that comes to my mind is Avastin in cancer. You know, this is a drug that maybe has recouped 80, 90 billion dollars in lifetime earnings. Um, and I'm going to set aside its, you know, off-label use and uh, yeah, macular yeah. degeneration. But let's just talk about its cancer use, which is still 80, 90 billion dollars in cancer. Um, the irony of its macular degeneration use is that it works probably just fine in macular degeneration, but they have to invent uh, a Me Too drug uh, so that they can sell it at a little, at a different dose or this for a ramped up price, uh, you know, when you could get away with the Vastin. Um, okay, anyway, we're back to the cancer. So this is a drug that, you know, almost always adds about a month of life um, when it does improve survival, but there are many cancers in which it doesn't. It's been tested in dozens and dozens of randomized trials, some of which might be positive by chance alone, just because it's been tested so many damn times. Um, so you're talking about a drug like this that um, one can imagine if you randomized nations to have Avastin or not have Avastin, and you stood back and you looked at cancer mortality, you wouldn't see an iota of difference. I mean, I doubt that as it's actually administered in the real world uh, with its um, you know marginal benefits and ideal patients, and th those benefits are likely eroded in real world patients, I doubt you'd see an, even an ounce of difference between these two nations. And yet it's been able to recoup tremendous billions of dollars for the manufacturer, most of which is profit because it's beyond R&D outlays and it's beyond manufacturing cost. And what you're saying is it's those drugs that we need to pay less for so we can pay more uh, potentially or pay fairly and incentivize fairly the good drugs, the drugs that really transform life expectancy. You nailed it. And I mean, the, the fact of the, the matter is it's, it's no secret that uh, drug development is disproportionately skewed towards cancer drugs in part because uh, there's a requirement that uh, government payers are going to have to cover all, all of those products. And then the secret simply is if you can convince physicians that to, to prescribe those medications, and thus we have a $30 billion physician marketing apparatus by the pharmaceutical industry, um, you can, it, what is really the focus is not whether or not the drug is good or not, but whether whether or not you can sell the drug or not. Yeah. And that's something we have to change. And I think, you know, I, I'm very interested in how that happens. And I think that um, in the in the COVID-19 thing, I see sort of a similar, um, similar sort of uh, flaw, which is look at how doctors will prescribe hydroxychloroquine for them or their family members. One thing that's, you know, in violation of ethical norms, uh, a, a threat to patients we actually see with lupus who now can't get the drug uh, based on very, I mean, shaky, shaky evidence. And to be honest, no, no real evidence at all. And yet you'll see so many practicing doctors prescribe them for their loved ones. Okay. Um, that's the same vulnerability in doctors that allows them to be seduced by the manufacturing apparatus, the machine of the industry. Because if they're not able to say the data for hydroxychloroquine is not that great, and therefore I certainly don't need to take uh, a breach of ethics to get it for my family. Um, if they're not willing to recognize that, how are they able to recognize when a drug rep comes to their office and tells them, you know, some marginal drug tested without a control arm with a surrogate endpoint that's never been validated, that drug rep says that that's a really great drug, you ought to prescribe it. They don't really have the tools in their tool basket to, to push back. And if they did, they would have pushed back on hydroxychloroquine, you know, so that's what I see the analogy is that it's the same tools that are deficient um, in the tool basket. You got it. And I think part of the difficulty is it's, it's a dangerous, uh, it's something, it's a message that is not easily received by many physicians in the sense that they view their incredibly long, incredibly rigorous training as preparing them to withstand marketing. But that's not what that training really is about. And 
there is a reason the pharmaceutical industry spends that much because every dollar that is spent is is returning four plus more dollars in, in in sales and so there's a clear logic to what's going on and one of the critical things is understanding uh i i think a sense of humility in terms of the susceptibility to marketing and uh, a greater awareness of that and a greater uh, move from a systemic perspective. I, I mean, it, to teach the tools that are required to interpret this evidence um, is one thing, um, but also to counter this evidence with easily available other evidence is another thing. But the bottom line is, yeah, it, you're exactly right. If the susceptibility to um, uh, to marketing is analogous to the susceptibility of the fears of of, of you know, the pandemic and uh, a willingness to embrace uh, low quality evidence to drive actions and um, yeah, that's and I, something that we need to change. Yeah. yeah, and I think I think you're also right, which is why do physicians feel so confident um, uh, that they that they should be able to sort of be resistant to this? And I think you're right, which is that um, four years of medical school, it's for the most part, it's not easy. You got to memorize a lot of stuff. But that's not the same thing as saying that the things you're memorizing are the right things you should be memorizing and that they're the right tools to protect you from this kind of marketing. Then you go to residency and you work super hard, so many hours, you're there all the time. And it's easy to confuse that with you're getting a great training, but that's not necessarily the training that makes your mind resilient to the sort of seductive power of advertising. Uh, it's not it's not sort of that cognitive training, you know, um, that maybe one can imagine sort of a Navy SEAL is getting trained to avoid interrogation, you know, that sort of thing. You're not you're not getting trained to avoid the power of marketing. You're getting a different training. It's very difficult. It's very hard. It's unpleasant. No doubt about that. But it's not the right training for for this purpose. But here, I want to ask you this question about this whole space, which is, you know, I follow your work. I followed it for years. Um, and and you all in Portal do spectacular work on this topic. And you're joined by, you know, several other groups around the country that do spectacular work on cost of drugs. Of course, I think of Stacey Dusitzina. I think of uh, Waleed Jalad. I think of Joe Ross and his team at Yale. You know, I think of a lot of people. And, and there are many more people who, you know, not immediately coming to my mind who've been working on this space for a long time. You guys are doing great work collectively. Okay. Um, and, and what you're saying is so, I don't know, it's so intuitive, logical, reasonable to me. Um, it, it's so uh, obvious. I, I mean, I hate to say that word, obvious to me. And, and I actually do remember, it wasn't that long ago, when I was in sort of a, a neutral stance. You know, when I was a student, I didn't have skin in the game. I didn't really understand much about drugs. And I remember thinking some of these drugs must be mar marvelous if they're going to cost so much and that sort of thing. But, you know, over the years, I've been reading sort of both sides of the issue. I was obviously drawn to sort of the perspective argued by the groups I mentioned. Okay, mm -hmm. so my question is this. This is so, so I was saying, so you guys make a convincing case. But my question is, if you were to zoom out on the whole system, I think you would see that um, while you there have been successes and there's been progress here and attitudes have been changed i think particularly among young people um that a lot of the system has not changed it continues to further entrenched interests we continue to in some ways we've regressed you know perhaps with this emergency authorization of hydroxychloroquine qualcomm we've even yeah. regressed in some ways um we we seem to be doing a worse job you have commissioners of the fda say look what a good job we've done we've approved 51 drugs and you're like, well, you know, the easiest way to approve drugs is just to say everything's approved, but that doesn't mean you're doing a good job. You know, you know okay, so you can push back. Um, so I guess my question is that is the reason why it's so difficult to make progress here because so many people profit from the status quo. I mean, let's just take the FDA commissioners. When 
FDA commissioner, that's a blip in your life. You're FDA commissioner a year, two years, five years, max maybe. But then the rest of your life is consulting for Verily and Pfizer and GlaxoSmithKline and all these companies, enriching yourself. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so that's the FDA commissioners. Then let's talk about many of the academics. Um, academic groups that maybe take the opposing view are often heavily funded by some of these companies or, or have spin-off companies or spin-off consulting groups that are sponsored by these companies and they do well for themselves. The academics yep. running the clinical trials, they do very well for themselves and enjoy the lifestyle of being a trialist. Um, the healthcare executives do well for themselves and the more an institution has a partnership with pharmaceutical companies, the more revenue that churns through that institution, especially in a time of declining NIH grants. And so yep. I guess what I, what I wanna offer is the reason the system is so hard to, to push or change is that that all of the players who should care about this topic are heavily incentivized not to do what you're saying. Um, even people uh, who developed CAR-T may themselves be personally incentivized um, to not support an independent R&D development because right now they're doing the tours for Kite CAR-T or you know, mm -hmm. they're, on, they're on the consulting board of Novartis, for instance, or something like that. Um, so I guess my question to you is how do you how do you get people to a state of neutrality? I mean, I, what, I, what I think is that what, what's, what's against you is that people in this space are not neutral. They have a lot of skin in the game and it's not in your direction. How do you yeah. get them to be able to just hear the arguments fairly? I guess that's a question. And so I think you're exactly right in pointing out the system and the structure is such that you've got to slowly reorganize that system. Otherwise, um, you're not going to get the results you want. This system is, the results we're getting are exactly what the system intended. And so you can take something just like Medicare Part B. I mean, it, so, I mean, why would oncologists like you be opposed to a, to a reform to a system that doesn't, as it currently does, incentivize high-cost products with no greater offer of efficacy? Um, but bottom line is because you benefit financially from prescribing that high-cost product. Yes, yes. And so that's just one example of the countless ones you've already offered. Um, and so the real question is, how, what is our role as academics? What is the role of advocates? What's the role of policymakers who actually want to make a difference? And I think we each have different roles to play. As far as Portal is concerned, I mean, wh what we want is a better system, and we want that to be evidence-based. But our role is to really produce the evidence that shows that over time, drug approval standards are declining. This isn't just it, the, the facts speak to this. And producing that body of evidence that shows that that shows that the reasonable pricing condition didn't have the one that NIH implemented at the height of the AIDS crisis didn't actually have the chilling effect that's often described. So there's a bunch of different research that I think groups like Stacey Duzetsna, people like Wally Jalad, Joe Ross, Portal, uh, can all offer in terms of evidence generation. But then there's a critical piece of uh, the narrative. And I think translating that evidence, and you do a great job in terms of converting what is in the literature to public audiences 
And let's be honest, I mean, I'm, I'm not currently on Twitter for, for work purposes, but being on Twitter and engaging with the public in that fashion is one way to do that. Uh, another way to do that is by having intersecting with advocates who are advocating for the changes you believe will create a more just system. Now, this also creates tension because your role as an academic is to produce the evidence. What is too much in the way towards advocacy versus evidence generation and being sort of a neutral mm-hmm. yeah. arbiter. And I think we each have our own roles to play within the system, and there's only so far you can go as an academic. But there, at that point, there's a, a way for an advocate to, to take over and to use that evidence into creating for better positions. But the fundamental problem is the entrenched nature of special interests is such that I uh, either you could have an exogenous shock, and maybe the pandemic is an exogenous mm, shock yeah. that's going to result in a reconfigured system, or you need to convince the public. And increasingly, I mean, it it, it is it's an open question, and it's frustrating because we know that you know eighty plus percent of the public, regardless of political party, thinks that we've got a very messed up pharmaceutical system. Yes. And yet, despite that, yes. we can't get any meaningful congressional action implemented. Um, so, what is it going to take? Uh, that is a great question, and the the hope is that it, there are people who think that the gradual reforms, things like the Creates Act, which would cut down on yes. abuses, which have finally been passed, shows that we can make progress. There are other people that are sort of, you know, a less willing to go the gradual route and think that a wholesale uh, system is. But in terms of what my, what I view my role as, is studying the evidence, putting forward arguments about why, how well or not well current uh, schemes are working, and to propose alternatives that that are based on the evidence that we think would would work better and create a more effective system. And I, I want to say one thing about that is I, I am. It's not as though people who are in my camp of reform are not cognizant about the fact of desiring to promote innovation. And I think that's critical is we know that with certain reforms, there are going to be trade-offs. Mm-hmm. And the real question is we need to have public discussion of what those trade-offs are and what the actual extent of them are. Mm-hmm. I think there's plenty of fear-mongering on, on both sides about what certain evidence actually means. And I think we need to be a little bit more nuanced in terms of uh, engaging uh, more people in this debate. Yes, uh, that that is a great sort of philosophy that you have brought to this. I guess more about, you know, maybe one specific thing that you raised is the CREATES Act. Why don't you just explain to us briefly, you know, what, what are the features in the CREATES Act that um, that will help on this issue? Sure. And this is something that's going to help on the margin. So there's certain things that I guess, you know, both parties would agree for. And that's the CREATES Act was in it was an act that is now law, and it would struggle to get passed for five plus years. And what it basically does is focus on this transition from the brand name uh, marketplace to the generic marketplace. And the, the notion is that, look, our fair exchange was... Uh, as taxpayers, as Congress, uh, we would provide incentives for pharmaceutical manufacturers to develop uh, products, and that's market exclusivity. Mm-hmm. That's what you get. Yeah. And 
It's only supposed to be for a fixed period of time, but pharmaceutical companies were engaging in various strategies and continue to, particularly in the biologic space, but engage in various strategies to extend that market exclusivity. And that's not a fair, uh, that's not a fair practice. And, and both parties sort of uh, appreciate that. Uh, in the sense that, look, at some point, we want to promote competition in the marketplace. And so what this would do is cut down, basically allow a court to force brand name companies to sell samples of their products uh, to generic manufacturers to perform the bioequivalence testing that they need to, yeah. uh, to get their drugs approved. Now, this is not a, it, 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 to show you how difficult reform in this system is, yeah. That, that seems like a very reasonable argument. Modest step, yeah. And yet it was it, – it, the power of the lobby is such that getting even that passed is extraordinarily difficult. But it shows that there is the possibility of getting things passed. And I think what we're seeing right now is there is a little bit more insulation at the federal level in terms of pharmaceutical reform. Um, because of the vast amount of money that's at stake. There's a little bit less insulation and a little bit more direct public anger, I think, focused at state representatives. Um, and I think that you've seen certain states like California, like Maryland, like Massachusetts take action um, to to do what they what is within their power to promote more uh, in a fo- more affordable pharmaceutical market. Yeah, I think. Um... I think you make a great point, which is that even in a system that's sort of as wired, as as geared against this as it could be, you're still able to make that that progress, that step forward. And that is a step forward because obviously it spares the it, – it makes it easier for a generic manufacturer to bring a drug product to market that's a generic. I guess I would ask you this question, sort of another philosophical question about this whole space, which is – I mean, one of the ways I sometimes view this, maybe perhaps cynically, is that, um, you know, in all societies throughout all of humanity, there are some small group of people who have some degree of power, and there may be even others on the outskirts of that group that aspire to be in that powerful group. And, and once they get into that powerful group, they want to do everything to consolidate their power. And one of the ways in which power is measured, of course, is political power, but also wealth. And in this country, political power and wealth are really sort of really intertwined in a in a sort of a in an unusual way. Um, but maybe you know, to some degree, throughout history, that that's always been the way. Um, so okay, so there's this group that's powerful. Um, healthcare as a space is just sort of a beautiful way to consolidate power. Why do I say that? Because it's very tricky. And as time goes on and scientific understanding gets better, it's even more tricky. And it's so easy to tell somebody who doesn't know anything about healthcare, these drugs are good and these drugs are bad. And if you don't know a lot of nitty gritty stuff about trials and how we assess that, you're not gonna understand what's actually good or what's bad. You're just gonna have to trust me. I'm telling you what's good and what's bad. And, and the thing healthcare promises you is the most important thing to you, your health, your life, your lo- longevity. And so unscrupulous actors not just companies, but even hospitals or device makers or surgeons or proceduralists or doctors um, can even deceive themselves into thinking that they're offering services that give you the greatest thing that I can give you, great, give people the greatest thing I can give them, more health. And these services may or may not actually do that. But we may have a system where we don't even know the answer to that question, so we are all free to deceive ourselves. And in exchange for those services, we can take massive amounts of wealth away from lots and lots of people in the form of premiums, in the form of um, 
subsidies for health care, and we can take 20% of GDP, which is sort of an, an ungodly amount. You know, in the history of man, has there ever been a nation where 20% of GDP has been sucked into health care, the thing that's giving you the greatest thing on earth, health? And what fraction of that GDP sucked into healthcare actually gives you greater health for the average person? Who knows? You know, it's almost an unanswerable question with the data we have. Um, but I think many of us who study this would be uh, would be would be shocked if it was the, close to the high end of the twenty percent. It's got to be a low fraction. A lot of that is just sort of the consolidation of wealth in the form of profits for prescription drug products or devices, which are hugely profitable. The shareholders who happen to own those stock in those companies, and even the providers who you know becoming a doctor is a huge ticket to a, a step up the ladder, you know, to a new life. Um, different than many of us grew up with who, you know, who are not born for children of physicians. And, and, and then the beauty of the whole system is it's not like we don't give you anything at all. We give you something because a lot of what we do do in healthcare really does make you better off. That's yep. totally true. So we're able to like add all this useless shit into it that's free riding and use that to consolidate power. And I guess my question is what you're pointing out, I mean, the work that you guys do in all the groups that we talked about is, um, is there a way to preserve the good part of healthcare, which is the thing that really does give you health, and cut out all this other sort of cancer growing within healthcare of all the things that just sort of move money around in sort of an, I think, a perverse way from a public point of view um, that, that really don't give that much health? And, and, and what you're talking about, you're, you're the guy who, who's talking about like the road signs and how we can like have better traffic signals so we can move, you know, the flow of this in the way we want. Um, I don't know. Do you, do you see yourself, your role, or do you see the world this way or am I perhaps too cynical? No, I think you're, you're right. And I think that, I think human nature is such that no matter what system you put in place, there's going to be people who are going to find ways to exploit loopholes within existing systems. But I think it's all the more dangerous in healthcare where, like you said, the narrative, and this sort of drives home to me the importance of narratives, the sincerely held belief that what you're doing is the right thing. And so when you're talking about what do I view my role is, I, I think to a certain degree, yes, you, I would like to to create a dynamic system of evidence generation and a dynamic system of reform because it's not as though you're going to have a one fix uh, for everything and, and you're done. It's going to be a constant state of evolution. Um, mm -hmm. And so making sure that people are, and I think you view yourself as a skeptic, I, we need to embrace skepticism in healthcare. Um, and I think we really need to champion that. There are people who talk about, you know, skeptics or, or critics are just, you know, it's it's not the same skill as building. Yes. I think they're different skills. And I think that that's a disservice to what critics offer, given the extraordinary amount of waste that we do have in healthcare, and given the incredibly powerful narrative of uh, helping people and promoting their health. Um, it makes being a critic all that more important. So I'd say one thing is we need to to embrace skepticism and criticism in healthcare. Um, but I think that from a systems perspective, it's always going to be such that uh, systems are, are going to be in flux. And I think that we've we've we right now are all we're really doing at this point is building on more scaffolding and creating a, a more bizarrely shaped house uh to to what is the u.s healthcare system right. 
Um, and at some point, maybe we get the chance to start clean, but chances are not. So what are ways in which we can craft the best reforms possible in the short term to, to drive this? And part of it is an academic exercise because we know from a pol- political perspective, things are not going to be done. So I, I think the, the best theorists in terms of how to reform healthcare are going to be those that uh, have one eye towards the horizon that is sort of saying, well, how do we reform, ideally reform the system, but are also sort of asking themselves, well, given the realities that we face today, what is the compromise that we can seek that will at least make some difference? And, you know, you got to be in both places because uh, it's it's both are, are needed. That's well put. So I want to want to thank you for coming back on this podcast, and I want to direct listeners to a few articles that you've had out recently that I think will frame the way they think about this. So one is a research letter that appeared in JAMA, which is entitled Sponsorship and Funding for Gene Therapy Trials in the United States. I think this makes a terrific point uh, that people need to consider, which is who has bore the brunt of expenses for gene therapy drugs, some of the most expensive, in fact, the most expensive now, currently, who knows, it'll change by the time this podcast is broadcast, it'll be remdesivir. But for now, it's gene therapy is the most expensive drug. Another article that was splendid was revisiting the National Institutes of Health fair pricing condition, promoting the affordability of drugs developed with governmental support. And this is a different idea that appeared in the Annals of Internal Medicine of a way in which we can balance, I think, public sector investment with a fair return to the public sector. And then the article that I really love that's that's going to be coming out very shortly in the Journal of Law, Medicine, and Ethics, which is entitled Development of a National Public Pharmaceutical Research and Development Institute. This is something that um, that I also uh, am a big supporter of. I think you'll find it if you if you read to the end of Malignant, <laughs> because I mentioned some similar kind of idea, which is that maybe there needs to be sort of a governmental way in which we can bring these drugs the last mile. And I think that that's a super important article. And I guess all of these articles are getting at, um, you know, who has shouldered risk and who should bear price. And, and that will be of super interest, I think, in the next six months when we will see there will be something that, you know, gets approved for, I think, COVID-19, something that probably actually works, not not something that that somebody in France thinks might work, but something that actually works. And and it'll be very interesting to know how it is priced and to whom uh, and, and who who paid for the investments and to whom uh, the money goes uh, from the profits. And I think that that is sort of perhaps the most important issue uh, for prescription drugs and devices in the next five or 10 years. Um, what do you think? Last word for you, Dr. Sarpatwari. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the podcast. It's always uh, it's always uh, rejuvenating, I think, and, and just nice to come on, on the show to talk about these ideas because oftentimes they're just thoughts running in your head. Um, and getting a chance to actually voice them, I think, uh, inspires me at least to, to go back and, and continue doing uh, the work that we're doing. Uh, and I know that you're trying to do as well and, and do extraordinarily well. So thank you for that. And thank you for, I, I hope that the listeners uh, will be able to access the articles. And if you have any issues accessing them, just feel free to, uh, to contact me directly by my email online. Um, but I think you're exactly right, uh, Vinay, in terms of the, the what is going to be the critical take-home here is uh, I think we will have successful therapies being developed, but I think what we need to 
we need to make sure is that that people who need them can access them in, in the time of this pandemic and that they can access them on on terms that are fair because uh, there will be an incredibly powerful motivation to pay whatever it takes and there are, there are plenty of people who are saying let's pay whatever it takes but the real question is what is fair and what is equitable in terms of what is being developed and that really stands to reason in terms of how was what was developed developed um, and what should the return on the various actors who've been involved in that process be um, because I, I think that that is at the end of the day what we're going to want is a system that is just um, and one that balances the need between uh, innovation and access. That is well put. Um, Dr. Sarpatori, thank you for coming on the podcast. Yep, thank you for having me. You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.